Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Corey Van Landingham is the author of Antidote, Ohio State University Press, and the upcoming book, Love Letter to Who Owns the Heavens, Tupelo Press. She is a recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and a Wallace Stegner Fellowship from Stanford University. And her poems have appeared in American Poetry Review, Best American Poetry, Boston Review, The New Yorker, and Virginia Quarterly Review. Originally from Ashland, Oregon, she teaches in the MFA program at University of Illinois. Corey, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me, James. I'm happy to be here. Excited to be here and to talk about your book. Uh, so your book in particular triggered this question for me. Uh, so what role does research play in crafting your poems? I've had readers ask me, how did you know so much about XYZ in that poem? And they're surprised when I answer that, I didn't know anything before I wrote the poem and researched what I needed to know. I asked this because of the details you infuse in the drone-inspired poems woven through your new book. I love this question. Um, and, and I think I have a really similar answer to you that oftentimes the research is the entry point um, that I think it's there's something about being a poet and you you train to see the world like a poet, which means seeing that in and that little bit of intrigue, that wonder, which leads to a question most of the time. So it's not like I had this wealth of knowledge about drones or about the history of California or um, even something like looking up like um, the mechanics of a, the ballpark kiss cam or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and But instead that I get some type of question that's lodged in in my head that I have to go and do a lot of research and it starts on Wikipedia often um, this spiral and then of course you get to this kind of um, uh, shallow base um, and you want more depth and so then going back through kind of where where can I find more information in literature um, mm -hmm. for the past you know centuries or something like that looking up etymology is always a big part of my research too when was the first time that this word was used um, and trying to see kind of a I don't know, unexpected moments of research too and so I'm thinking about um, for example, in, uh, oh, I'm always forgetting the names. Oh, when I had to go back um, for a love letter to the president and look up, even though I said I remembered the taxonomy of the humpback whale, it's been a long time since right. I've done these reports. And so I just like went on this three hour binge of looking up all this information about the humpback whale to see what could I include. And it was from those moments of those facts that I found that information about the song again and the recurring diverse song. And so it's always, um, so it starts from a point of intrigue and that question, and that just kind of unfolds and spirals to think about what kind of textures can I uncover? 
Yeah, and also that uh, that sort of instinct that as poets we have, where we're looking for poetic phrases and words and concepts, and and you'll find some. I'll find something when I'm, I was researching a poem that uh, about sculpture, and I'd never sculpted before, and I wanted to really know the tools that are used. So I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos to see the techniques, and then I'm linking. Uh, then I'm going to you know Wikipedia page, look all the words, and and I'm like, okay, that's poetic, that's poetic, mm, that's not. All right eliminate <laughs> absolutely we've become kind of magpies or you know like thinking like oh like what's the shiny thing that i can collect and put in this poem's nest <laughs> that's a lovely way of articulating it so building on that question recessional powerfully builds on the wedding reception drone strike tragedy the line imagine though the moment before the bride's hand on her mother's wet cheek this is a universal image in the revision and editing process, how do you work through the challenge of turning research into poetry? And we started to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of the, the difficult things of like how to turn away from information um, and how to cast information in a way that's art. And especially through in recessional, I think that that poem relies heavily on artifice. So even though it stems from research and stems from you know this tragic real world event, I'm moving into seeing how do I approach this through aesthetics, and that comes in you know in the inclusion of Petrarch um, mm -hmm. and just thinking too about how one frames their own experience and sees it outside themselves, which is a big question of this book, whether it has to do with the drone or with love or with one's experience of the history of, um, you know, geographical place. Um, and so I think that in the revision process, it always has to do with a kind of, is there a flatness of tone here? Is this only existing to provide information? If there's not another layer, another level of texture, whether it's um, sonic play, rhythmic play, um, whether it's kind of like callback, an associative leap to something else, um, a grade, something like that within the poem, then I know that I need to go back. And oftentimes, too, that's something that it takes another reader to help mm -hmm. me see still. Um, I really rely on my poetry communities and my trusted readers that I've kind of gleaned throughout the years. And my husband is one of them. He's my, you know, know my, my best editor and he's very good at letting me know when like this is just information um because no matter how long we write you know it's uh still difficult sometimes just to, to step outside yourself and to see uh this just not working <laughs> that's the same with me my wife and my dad actually are my frontline editors and then i have a critique group and other that take it to the next level but yes my wife uh, i benefit from her being unflinchingly honest uh which is really valuable absolutely valuable and sometimes difficult but yes. you know you can trust that so yeah <laughs> uh so the lines must we fall so in love with abstraction in your poem anti-blazon and we had astonished readers of history lean forward but the thick railing holds us back from cyclorama capture for me one of the key themes in your book how we are increasingly disconnected from our actions how did you approach, and you've started to talk about this, how did you approach themes when curating from a collection of poems written over a period of years? I'm glad you asked this question because in some ways preparing for this podcast for, for another interview, it's been a really difficult process because this book 
was the first poems that I wrote in this book were just when my first book was published, which is in 2013, so around the same time. And so it's been a really long time. And these, I feel like this is a palimpsest and a kind of like strange archival object of my own um, poetic growth, but also personal growth and intellectual growth. Uh, there's, you know, poems in here that, that I would never write now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do have to approach the book kind of like its own object and it's like its own kind of time capsule in a sense that this is the aim of this book and this is what I'm trying to do within it. And so the poems, there were poems I wanted to include that were older, poems that were newer, that just didn't quite map the, the arc. And maybe the arc is a little bit too neat, but I do think that there's kind of like a progression of stance that the various speakers take throughout the book. Uh, so something that was too too critical without any other type of lenses or textures, I ended up having to ditch. Mm-hmm. Like very, um, I don't know, unnuanced older poems, uh, especially concerning the drone, for example. Yeah. Uh, so I think that there had to be a little bit more um, complexity um, and a little bit more, you know, I... I criticize omniscience in the book, of course, but I do think that omniscience can be helpful um, as a poetic kind of technique too, as much as we can strive for it of trying to see what happened before us, what will happen um, after us, and what's happening outside of us at the same time is always seen useful for for the poetic eye, which I rely on a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I, I am a, a lyric poet in general, and so that the first person is always. Uh, very fragile, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I think that you're, uh, this book is very effective in that it creates poetry from subject matter that could easily, with a little bit of few degrees in the wrong direction, be purely informational or um, almost be too direct. So uh, yeah, I think that's very effective. So another thing you do in this book is you play with form a lot. So how do you discover the form of a poem? Uh, The prose poem, which you mentioned before, the prose poem, the president took no questions, reminded me of the unpunctuated and unbroken prose of uh, Jose Saramago's novel, Blindness, whereas taking down the bridge uses a more structured form. So how do you discover form? Yeah, I love that question. It's something I think about a lot. It's one of my favorite things to teach. Um, um, the poetic forms class here at Illinois, I, I always ask to teach that first. Um, and I think part of it is thinking about the the layer of artifice that a poem requires. So for me, the prose poem is the poem that invites in the least amount of artifice, right? When we're ditching the line break, when we're trying to say, okay, look, this is a recognizable form. This uh, resembles prose. It might invite in a little bit more of an intimate, relatable, personal voice without the kind of artificial breaks of the line. Um, And especially within a kind of epistolary poem too, like a love letter to the president. And of course there's artifice in epistolary poems or in all letters that we write. We're um, presenting just one aspect of the self. Um, But my favorite, I mean, I love reading the letters of poets. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite things. And I've kind of picked throughout some of that in the book to include. Um, But one of the things that I love about reading those letters is when you get that moment that kind of 
breaks the artifice and this kind of like florid or uh, distance presentation of the self where in like Elizabeth Bishop's letter she's like oh no the parrot just like got loose outside I will return um and these moments where like the quotidian really breaks in and I feel like that's um a perfect use for the prose poem so when mm -hmm. I'm thinking that I want something a little bit more intimate um, a little, a speaker who feels a little bit more human or relatable, um, something closer to the prose form or maybe to a longer line or something that's not using a kind of um, field of the page approach. Whereas something like Take Down the Bridge or Recessional, um, those are poems that to me really call attention to artifice and saying, look, this is me trying to point out to the mate how made this thing is, especially with the taking apart of the bridge, kind of seeing the poem itself like this construction. Mm -hmm. And um, a construction that can, at some point, be picked apart too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So I, I particularly enjoyed reading Post Out Loud, and I read parts of your book out loud to my wife, which I really enjoyed doing. It reads like a stream of consciousness as though it was written in one take, which I'm sure wasn't the case. Um, how do you decide using that poem as an example when editing more is unlikely to improve a poem? That's a great question because I do think we can edit the life out of poems. Yes, and, that's a great way of, of describing it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and it's also hard because you—it's intuitive in some ways, and mm. so much of what we try to learn or teach about poetry is, um, you know intentional choices mm -hmm. and it's difficult to teach intuition it's part ear but tone is really important to me as a poet and especially in this collection of kind of creating a wide tonal landscape and i think paying attention to tone um helps me know when when i'm flattening a poem when i'm deadening a speaker the speaker has to kind of stay alive and you can go back and change words um change uh, the kind of attitude toward the subject matter through through the alteration of diction. Um, but in general, the attitude towards the subject has to see the same, it has to see believable. You have to be kind of yeah. entranced by the world of the poem and by that voice. Um, so some posts actually did come a little bit quicker for me for some poems. And often when I'm using an anaphora, that's the case, it kind of helps um, propel the poem and the voice a little bit more. Uh, so you're absolutely right that it was a poem that did unfurl a little bit faster. It was a little bit less laborious in its right. process than some of the others. Um, in Elegy, I turned my father to ash so he could never be resurrected is a poignant and powerful closing line. How do you approach ending your poems? Thank you. Uh, I'm right now designing a class that's all about beginnings and endings. And so I'm starting to just create these files of beginnings and endings of poems that I admire. And I've come to realize that the endings that I most love um, have a pivot to them. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like uh, the floor falls out from underneath you. Uh, I love ending with statement. I'm a really statement-driven poet. Um, I believe that, you know, uh, image is wonderful, but I get frustrated by 
purely image-driven poetry. I often want a statement to situate myself. I want to feel that kind of thrill of the mind at work at the same time. Uh, so a statement at the end of the poem I find very seductive. Um, but you also don't want to be too heavy-handed, and that's something that sometimes I struggle with as a poet too, is uh, where does gravitas feel false? Right. Where does it feel like where the speaker is overstepping or maybe perhaps not even the speaker the poet is overstepping too much towards profundity and just trying to be poety too so it has to feel like true to the world of the poem while being unexpected in that same kind of leap uh and it, it's a difficult uh it's a difficult balance i think of wanting something memorable and something that speaks at a different register without feeling false at the same time. Well, for your course, you may want to, I, I don't know the exact quote, but I read this somewhere. A.E. Stallings in an interview was asked a similar question. And she said, I, uh, I, the end of my poem is whatever I've written minus the last two or three lines. Oh, I love that. I'm going to write that yeah, down. Yeah, and it's, and I, and in the Poetry Critique Group, I've used that. We jokingly call it the Stallings rule. And we'll say, you know what? I think this poem, we should apply the Stallings rule. Chop off the last two lines. I think it's a lot better. It's surprising how often that helps. Yeah. yeah. It's great advice because so often we, yeah, we do write past that final moment because you want the moment before the labor. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, you mentioned this in a couple different ways, but as a professor in the Department of English at University of Illinois, you've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of students. My poetry journey was started by a remarkable teacher way back in the 10th grade. What do you learn from your students and how do you create excitement for poetry in your classes? Oh, I love that question. Um, I learn... I learn different things from my students because I teach at both the graduate and the undergraduate level. Um, at the graduate level, I think that I learn to be incredibly open and porous with my aesthetic um, because we invite young poets from all over the country to come and study with us. They all have this different lineage and they can be so excited by someone that I would never choose to read on my wow. own. And their excitement towards this different aesthetic um, shows me the kind of multifaceted uh, possibilities of poetry, especially poetic form. And so just being able to read and become excited by um, aesthetics very different than my own, I think, is something that I'm always learning from those students. Um, and from the undergraduates, then what I love about teaching kind of introductory or basic tenets um, of the undergraduate courses is that it kind of forces you to interrogate them at the same time. So when we're kind of reinforcing like the dogma of the image, which of course I'm always like cramming it down their throats, more images, please put in like a throwable thing into the poem. I want something I can see or smell or touch. Uh, but then I start to think, well, why? Um, why, why do I need this? Why is this important in a poem? We have, you know, centuries of writing to back this up why it is important but at the same time how can i teach them to make other language outside of the image sing in the same way so again going back to statement how can they use that to think better in their poems to frame an image maybe it just doesn't mean um you need the scaffolding of the image and then you bring in the other parts but how do you think like a poet in a way that makes all language come to life. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's really helpful for me as a teacher and a poet. <laughs> I love that. It's great that you've had experience with both uh, masters and, and introductory level students. I feel very lucky. 
As a poet, I love the challenge of finding the perfect word or sound or rhythm. Sometimes I'll have an instinct that a specific word exists for an idea and I'll start researching, hoping the word exists and that it's poetic if I find it. I mentioned A.E. Stallings before. Well, her poetry is filled with incredible words. Uh, in your poem, The Quarry, you use the word crackalure, a wonderful word with a very specific meaning. What is your approach to solving poetry puzzles with the perfect word? You're right. It can just feel like the best feeling in the world when you find that that right word. It feels like you find the exact right shape to fit into the right slot um, and can be so maddening when you can't find it. Um, I, so it's interesting in the quarry in that word, the crackalure. In some ways, I feel like the what maybe works about that strange addiction is that that is from a poem that I wrote during my MFA that never went into my first book. And it was just like this line that I had, um, and it was about a quarry, but totally different from this. It was very surreal, um, I think un unpunctuated, um, incredibly like heightened lyric. Uh, and I just brought in, I kind of trawled that into mm -hmm. this new poem. And so it was a register shift. And sometimes I do think that's how you find the right word is because if you're trying to work within the register that you've been using the rest of the time in the poem, um, you don't make the necessary leap to the possibilities of what you can include, that kind of like porousness of language, um, whether it's a portmanteau or if it's um, a, a scientific word that wouldn't exist in the kind of like lush beauty of a lyric line or something like that. But sometimes it is that register shift that allows you um, to move in a new direction um, and the kind of lyric movement that I'm often looking for. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, and if I ever get a chance to talk to A. Stallings, who I'd love to talk to someday, her either she has an absolutely ridiculous vocabulary, which I'm sure she does to a point. I also suspect she's very good at having an instinct that a word exists and then go look for it. So absolutely, and I'll also just quickly mention. Yeah. Ever since I was a graduate student, my notebooks are completely full with often not like full lines or poems, just words. I'm again like that magpie that whatever I read, I just keep word lists mm, and it's a... not image lists or anything like that. And so it's just things that I want to keep around that I know I want to use someday. That, that's a great practical suggestion. I love that. Uh, so having a single poem published is an accomplishment given the high rejection rate of most publications. Thinking back to that time in earlier in your career, when you were waiting for that first acceptance letter, what advice do you have for poets at the start of their journeys? That you have to believe in the poems because the waiting for the acceptance never goes away. I mean, the first acceptance is thrilling and perhaps the most thrilling, um, but that it never, I feel like, I don't know how you feel, but I always feel you'll never be completely satisfied mm -hmm. and there will always be something else that you want and that you don't have and that you'll be rejected for or something that you're waiting to hear back from. And the only way to survive if you're sending your poetry out to the world is to really actually believe in the poems and to find pleasure in writing because that's the other thing that I feel like when we're getting into the po busy part of our right. poets, which is also necessary because, you know, we don't have agents, most of us in the world to, to do this work for us. So we have to do this kind of labor, but, um, 
I, I think that we can forget the pleasure of actually writing poetry. And so if you don't believe in the work that you're doing in the first place, um, you can be flattened by, by rejection. And so I think that um, just spend, believing in your work is the most important advice that I can give. That's great. And one, I have a new perspective now because I accept submissions for my, for this podcast and the website and have received wonderful poems and it has nothing to do with the quality of the poem. It's simply, I can only take a few and there's a certain arc that emerges. And uh, I think that's something that I remind myself is that many, if you really believe in the poem, it's likely the rejection had nothing to do with the quality of the poem. It had to do with whatever collage they were trying to create and uh, don't get uh, despondent. Yeah. Although it's hard. It is hard. You still get, you know, disappointed with the rejection or something like that. It's hard. It's easy to say and hard to practice. Yes. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read a couple of selections from your book. Uh, this poem is good, The Goodly Creatures of Shady Cove. Uh, it's an early poem in this book. And just very briefly, uh, I'm from Ashland, Oregon. So it's a small town in Southern Oregon and it's famous for its Shakespeare festival. So I grew up with uh, kind of Shakespeare in my veins a little bit, um, but I was returning to Ashland from living in the Bay Area. Uh, and I went and I saw The Tempest and the next day I went and drove up to one of my favorite spots in the Rogue River. And this is one of the poems, that, one of the few poems I've written where it kind of is almost exactly as it happened. Uh, so, a little bit less artifice. The Goodly Creatures of Shady Cove. Above the boat launch, four boys test themselves against the river. They front flip over the reeds, past the rocks, into the one spot deep enough to hold them. Then again, from the shade, three girls are watching. You have to be brave, one says, to jump from the bridge. She means the water is so cold it will swallow you. She means it's foolish to approach depths you will never quite touch. The others look struck as Miranda first seeing mortal men. And they are a spectacle, the boys never even once glancing true to just themselves. Thus unfolds the pageantry of desire. You there, me here. In the self-same space of wanting, cruelty is born. Breaking from the rest, one boy ties the end of his t-shirt to form a net, thrusts it into the water and emerges almost too easy with the fish the others gather, and he hurls the shirt against the concrete ramp. Again, again, newly aware of his power, he makes sure the girls observe this. He wants the other boys to see the girls see what his hands can do. For the first time, the girls are terrified of men. Oh, brave new world of the body, Oh, beautiful boys of America, will you clap your friend on the back? Will you sidle next to the young women and say something gentle? 
Uh, and this second poem is called On the Theory of Descent um, and is close to the end of the collection. Um, and I think of it as kind of, uh, there's a progression of thought and a kind of unfolding complexity towards the approach of the drone as, as the book unfolds. And um, this came out of a conversation with a friend of mine who's a veteran. Um, and there's a just a tag after the title that um, indicates that we're talking about Darwin in the beginning here. On the theory of descent, he meant, of course, origin. What strains from what framework of bones? The form the giraffe bends down to the dirt, same as the elephant, binding our foreign numbered weight. And from the war of nature comes the production of a higher animal. Say, from the war of nature comes what we need, a machine more than man. What mind wouldn't want this? Clean tactic, poor boys of America safe before a screen. My friend, caught in Jalula by an IED, not quite right still. Who am I then to demand a higher order? There is grandeur, Darwin says, in this view of life. The new technology that keeps our global hawk air strong 34 long hours, improving the real bird's endurance by a day. So art plays nature's second part. Coiled, darker than black, the engine resembles sci-fi's most gleaming machination. Death helmet, snake pit, asteroid flung, endless forms most beautiful. It looks ready for space, some thicker atmosphere. Over Gaza, men call drones Zanana, nagging wife, slang imitating sound. How hungry language becomes. Thy soul was like a star. They are as gentle as zephyrs blowing below the violet. Her beauty hangs upon the cheek of night. Always we want more. Catch up, fiction. We are already our most gruesome design. Operators in their padded chairs in low tan Midwestern buildings cannot hear the buzzing like a thousand chainsaws these new birds make. Bangana, Ashtu for wasp, sing us a song we can fall down into. Sing something decent, something far off and sweet. We are, we now know, made from star stuff. Who wouldn't feel godlike, so hovering, so composed? Mm, I love the two poems that you selected. And before I t ask some questions about them specifically, uh, what is your approach to preparing to read a poem that you've written as opposed to reading, you know, a, a poem that you haven't written? And uh, I've asked this question of uh, a couple people in earlier episodes, Olivia Gatwood, who's a phenomenal uh, performer uh, of poetry, of her own poetry. And, uh, and then the poetry coach I work with, who's a USC film 
uh, screenwriting grad who I hired to help me learn how to perform my poetry, which is a skill I never really had any formal training in. So how do you approach that challenge of taking your written poetry and transforming it into performance? I'm envious of your poetry coach. Um, <laughs> He's I amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't enjoy reading poetry out loud, my own poetry. It's not something, um, I, I mean, I'm not supposed to say this because I am supposed to want to, you know, um, go and read my work in front of people, but, but I really, there's nothing about it that I enjoy. But I do enjoy um, reading the work of others out loud in, mm. in class. You know, there's always... Um, but with undergraduates, sometimes uh, a reluctance, of course, to volunteer to read the poem out loud or just kind of like not paying any attention to line breaks. There's a zooming through it. and like, no, 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 slow down. Give it the time and pleasure it deserves. Um, but I think that that kind of pleasure is one I take with other people's words more than with my own because for me, it's just something that I get more out of on the page a lot of the time. <laughs> well, I think there's also an element of it. I had this experience when I was asked by the city of Dublin uh, as part of being poet laureate to uh, to prepare a poem for a veterans uh, event. And uh, I took a, an experience I had in Normandy years ago and and that was a and created a poem around it. And that was really effective. And then uh, I have never been so nervous when I walked in that room and it's the entire city council, it's the entire school board and it's the police chief and the fire chief and all these veterans and the responsibility I felt to not, you know, make ill use of that couple of minutes I was given. I think it's different if I had just chosen a poem that in itself was already proven, whereas this was the first time anyone in that room had heard it. So I, I can relate. It's different. It's very different reading your own poem as opposed to someone else's. Absolutely. I still shake when I give readings. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's hard. So on the uh, theory of descent, uh, you, as you mentioned, a play on Darwin's The Descent of Man, you create an unexpected connection between the evolution of animals, the war of nature, and the evolution of warfare, a machine more than man. I'm fascinated to learn more about the evolution of a complex poem like this. And it is a complex poem. There's a lot going on, how it took shape. And I encourage listeners when you're able to do so, when it's published, pick up a copy of Corey's book to actually see the poem visually. Thank you. Um, I, I'm glad it seems complex because it was a difficult poem to write and I do, it was one of the later poems that I wrote for this book too, because as I said, it was part of a larger kind of progression of thought. And I was in a workshop with a friend of mine, as I said, who's, who's a veteran and he had a really great question about some of my other poems and he said you know it's it's really or maybe it was more a statement uh, it's easy when you've never been boots down in country and a drone has never literally saved your life mm, to so. criticize this um and so i started to spend just a little bit more time with that um and trying to be a little bit more capacious in um my my thinking about about the militarized drones specifically uh, and through that I, I think I just kept trying to like weave in different threads to um, I needed to complicate it even more I didn't want it to be conversational I wanted to root it back to a kind of lineage of animals and humans and war but also of language and this kind of insatiability of metaphor and always trying to come up with something more than um, which I do feel like 
the drone is, and it's more than human, which can be incredibly effective, but also terrifying. And so what does it mean when language is like more than mm -hmm. human, more than the real thing? We thought to think of this sometimes as like decorative or artificial. It can be highly effective in poetry, but also it can be distancing um, to a negative effect at the same time. So uh, I love the turn in The Goodly Creatures of Shady Cove when the poem goes a bit darker and it's no longer just a summer memory, but a commentary on the paths boys can take evolving into men. Uh, when do you see the turn in your poems? Is it conscious or is it after the fact you realize there needs to be one or you see it? I had one poem where, where my poetry coach, <laughs> which is literally a poetry coach, he asked me, where's the turn? I said, I don't I hadn't really thought about it. I think it's here. And he goes, yeah, that's where I would see it. So is it, it made me talk about this poem and that, that are you conscious or is it an unconscious thing? Definitely conscious. Um, in some ways, even though I never know exactly where a poem's going. And as I said earlier, I start with that question. I think I always have the turn in my head in some way because there has to be some complexity. There has to be a duality before the poem even begins. It can't just be, as you said, just a summer memory. There has to be some texture. And to me, I find a poem. That's what I mean, like when you know you're talking about like training students to see the world like a poet. I think it's seeing that texture, it's seeing mm -hmm. that duality, it's seeing maybe an irony or something like that. And so in that initial texture, the irony, I feel like the turn's already there. Um, and so that's the kind of um, the layers that I, I need to first dive into starting a poem. Um, you know, sometimes a turn doesn't work and I'll have to go back and find a different turn, a different right, path. Right. <laughs> but in general, it, it is there in the beginning, I think. Cool. So one final question, given the long cycle between writing and being published, uh, what are you focused on now? Uh, thanks for that question. It's, yeah, it's weird to turn back to a book that I it's been feel like I've been done with for so long. Right. Um, but, uh, so I just finished a, a third manuscript of poems, um, tentatively titled, titled Reader Eye, um, and they're kind of working around the world of uh, new marriage and thinking about what it means to become a wife. Um, but I, since I recently completed that, I'm now uh, researching new poems, um, specifically about Julia the Elder, hmm. who was Augustus's daughter and was um, banished to this very small island um, off of Naples, Ventotene. Um, it used to be Pandateria, and thinking about the, her kind of isolation there. And so I'm starting these series of persona poems um, in her voice, and it's been really exciting to tackle something completely different from from my own voice. I just got a little bit sick of it after a few books, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I look forward to talking about those when the time comes. Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your insights with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thank you so much, James. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch. Subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. <laughs>